Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I wanted to ask the question, and people reflect on this. What would someone with the genetic endowment of Christ say about the state of the environment? Would he join Wall Street or street protests? I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Today's guest is Dead Wild. George Paxinos is one of the world's most prominent scientists who you've probably never heard of. He has identified and named more parts of the brain than anyone in history. He's also written 57 books about the brain, one of which is the third most cited science book in the world. George is also a climate activist who, in a desperate act, his words, at 78, has published a novel about a female scientist who clones Jesus as a upriver parable to inspire climate action. The resulting Jesus clone twin boys that she produces go on to wrestle the climate crisis via the moral compass of the saviour, forcing the reader to ask, what would Jesus do? Would he side with Wall Street or with the street protesters? The book took George 21 years to write, which makes the seven years I took to write First We Make the Beast Beautiful look kind of speedy. And I'll just toss in a few more bio notes on George because they are impressive. He is an order of Australia. He was raised in Ithaca in Greece, but studied at Berkeley, McGill and Yale. He's a professor at Neuroscience Research Australia and the University of New South Wales. He's president of Australia's Neuroscience Society and the World Congress. And he has won scores of awards from institutions from the British Medical Association to the prestigious Academy of Athens. He's also a mad cyclist and ran for the Australian Cyclist Party and fought for the light rail that we now have here in Sydney. I thoroughly enjoyed this chat and our aim, I guess, was to wrestle out this one wild idea. Are their brains big enough or good enough to save the mess we have made on this planet? Welcome to Wild, George Paxanos. Thank you, Sarah. Pleasure to be here. Oh, I love that we're speaking in a studio here together. You discovered a stain or a chemical, I guess, that allowed you to map bits of the brain almost like a kid's colouring in book. But you studied maths and you studied uh, psychology and a bit of philosophy as well. And you're not an anatomist. How the hell did you become the world's most famous brain mapper? 
It was uh, riding a stain. It used to be said that uh, the gain in the brain is mainly in the stain. I introduced a way of coloring the brain that revealed its parts in far more detail and far more accuracy than previously. Uh, so I didn't need to be a neuroanatomist. I should actually point out to everyone listening that recently the model that you created, so using this particular stain, was compared with the new online atlas from the Allen Institute, which is a multi-million dollar American organisation that employs like more than 100 researchers. And they compared it with your modelling and you are a team of one or two and yours was declared way more superior despite all of that money and everything. So kudos to you. But can you tell us how much of the human brain has been mapped? Right. Firstly, the Allen Institute does many good things in this effort that they made to uh, produce an atlas of the mouse brain. They were not as good as my laboratory. Now on uh, how much has been mapped of uh, the brain in uh, the so-called subcortex, the one below the covering, uh, that uh, we know pretty well of the human. The cortex is the big battle because that's also where many of the interesting things occur, emotions, higher cognitive functioning. We are still uh, worried. We don't, we don't have a good map of uh, the human cortex. And we're trying now with a new approach, which is using MRI because it has some advantages over the stains that have been using traditionally. This is that the MRI can give you the directions of communication between neurons, the pathways, colored in, in fact, if uh, they are from left to right, connecting the two hemispheres, it is red. If it is uh, up and down, it is blue. And if it's an anterior posterior, then it is green. So you have uh, some additional information with this approach. And it is this what we are doing just now in my lab. One of uh, my colleagues uh, had the courage to stay for 40 hours in the magnet on and off, of course, over a, a lengthy period. We have obtained images from his brain that we believe are unsurpassed. And uh, this way we think we will be able to do a new map of the living human brain that will be accurate. That's incredible. I mean, that's a massive step forward. So well done on that. I've heard you say that you don't actually think the brain is such a big deal. I mean, we tend to think that it is. We think it's the seat of a whole bunch of things that define us as an individual and we hold it in awe almost. But you, I think, tend to say that it's not really worthy of that. Why is that? Given that it's what you do for a living. Yes, certainly never since Narcissus fell in love with the reflection of uh, his face on the river has there been such an admiration of a bodily organ as there is now of the brain, the decade of the brain, the century of the brain, but never with uh, as little justification. If you consider that the brain is really the human brain, is 1.3 kilos. It's really impressive in that sense. But beyond that, it is made in the same pattern as the brain of the chimpanzee. The greatest surprise that I've had as a scientist is that there are no regions of uh, the human brain that are different, additional than uh, what you find in uh, the chimpanzee brain. So in whatever else, uh, Sarah, you might resemble the divine. 
in your <laughs> brain, you're made in the image of the chimpanzee. And of course, it is larger than expected by our body size. So it's a species specialization, much like a giraffe has a large neck. We have a large brain, but uh, this uh, structural advantage, this marginal superiority has led to the hubris that we are made in the image of God. The ancients didn't have a good view of such claims. You might have uh, come across Sisyphus. I told my granddaughter of eight years of age, this king was condemned by the gods to push a rock all the way up the hill only to fall down again and have to push it back up the hill because he was narcissistic, egotistical, and insulting. And she said, like Trump. <laughs> Is that what she said? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so the, uh, hubris uh, was not appreciated by the ancient gods. I want to just go back to your idea on the brain. Is it the seat of the soul or consciousness? I mean, a lot of people think it is. What's your take? Well, thank you for firstly considering all good things that should belong to the brain. This hasn't been always appreciated uh, that the brain does a few things. Indeed, the ancient Egyptians heedlessly discarded the brain in funerary practices and sent millennia of pharaohs brainless to their afterlife. It was uh, Hippocrates, the greatest doctor of antiquity, who said uh, men ought to know that uh, from the brain, our brain alone, derive uh, our joys, laughters and jests, as well as our sorrows, griefs and tears. But unfortunately, Aristotle, who comes later than Hippocrates, took a different view that the brain was there to cool the blood, air conditioning. Is that right? <laughs> great as a scientist he was, he mistook this. And the professor's greatness is measured by how long they managed to stymie progress in their field. And his adherence kept this erroneous idea going for thousands of years. It was someone else, however, who was battling it, Galen, who was an admirer of Hippocrates, and he formulated the encephalocentric view of the soul, as it was called then, and the two battled each other out until the dawn of modern age, and it you have now Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice. Portia asks, where is fancy bread, fancy being love, or in the heart or in the head? But if you go today to Bondi Junction to find a card to send to your loved one, you will be confronted, certainly on the day of um, St. Valentine's, with a about, lot of hearts. About 300 cards, each one with at least one red heart on it. None of them with the, the brain. brain. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was forced to write a letter in the newspaper, darling, I love you from the bottom of my brain. I got a call from a journalist in the ABC Melbourne. Are you insisting that the heart has nothing to do with love? And I said, if in a heart transplant, I said to her, I receive your heart. I am not going to fall in love with your husband. And she said, what a pity. And he's such a lovely man. <laughs> is that a true story? Yeah, it's true story. You're very mischievous. What is your take now? Do you think the, the brain is the site of the soul or is it just a sort of a, 
organ that takes in stimulus and spits out response? Essentially, does the latter, as it concerns soul, first question is, does it exist? And then you can ask whether it is in the brain. The concept that is uh, adhered by a large in neuroscience is that if uh, the soul is where sensations become perceptions, where reasoning takes place, where decisions are made, where love is manufactured, where memories are stored, then there is no reason to assume there is a soul because there is already an organ which undertakes these functions. So the brain does these things that we used to attribute to the soul. And we call that, of course, the mind. And I can tell that you would have worries that, okay, have you substituted the word uh, soul, mind? What have you gained? Well, you've gained something in the sense that you don't have to deal with immortality. Then so mind for the neuroscientist is the integration of the activity of the brain. Once that activity ceases, so does the mind. You might say, is that uh, nonetheless something different than matter? Neuroscientists believe that it is just matter. It's really just the activity of the brain, electrical, chemical, physical, nothing else. But the neuroscientists cannot answer the fundamental question, which is, what is consciousness? They really are confused. But they don't run up to the mountains to seek uh, answers in gurus. They do know something about consciousness and they know that it's the activity of the brain in the following way. We are more conscious. We have a high degree of consciousness right now. We are adults. Both of us were not embryos. If we were embryos, we would have very little of it or if any. And if you look at a different dimension from in the evolutionary scale, that is, where is consciousness arising? You will find certainly it's present in all mammals, certainly in, in chimpanzee, in, in all mammals, in fact, in the small mouse, probably in the octopus. Well, that's been shown, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Right. So therefore, you can see its proxies, evidence for it, but we don't know how it arises that a material thing gives rise to the pleasure of seeing the rainbow, the feeling of you're in love. These, what the philosophers called qualia, we do not know. But the idea today in neuroscience that it has to be the brain and the brain is responsible for even the decisions that you make, the, the, your behavior that is. And also this idea of free will. We as humans don't like the idea that we're just a bunch of synapses reacting and responding and absorbing and that we are all sort of the same. We like the idea that there is an element of free will. There's an element of individual identity. And I think that that's what we grapple with. And neuroscientists or scientists in general and philosophers have different approaches to that and different levels of comfort with to what extent they can pinpoint the soul. Yeah, well, the uh, freedom, uh, the will, is an illusion, according to neuroscientists. That's, of course, the majority view. There are others who dispute that, but even the ones who argue in favor of the existence of free will. It's a modicum of free will that they argue for. And uh, this is even the law considers that and there's no retributive, to some extent, there's no retributive justice. And the concept is that uh, our behavior is the outcome of two and only two factors. That is the genetic endowment, which we have no control over, 
and the environmental influences on it, which again, we have no control over. And indeed it is nature via nurture. It's both. Different environments will sculpt different characters, behaviors, even in identical twins. And this is indeed the story in my novel. Exactly. Well, let's move on to that because I have read most of your book. You've been an activist all your life, from what I can gather, a climate activist. You were pivotal in New South Wales in terms of getting a light rail, and we've got the light rail literally outside the studio. You also ran for the Australian Cyclists Party, and I think I crossed paths with you in that era. It took you 21 years to write a novel, but it's recently been published. Why did you decide a novel was the way to go? A failure led to fiction. Uh, (laughs) Yes, it was uh, a defeat at the hands of governments in everything I tried because light rail back then was defeated in the 80s when I tried to reintroduce trams to Sydney. And for a decade, I was thinking if only I could write an environmental novel, uh, eco-fiction, so that I would take the reader with me, then I would not have to try to stop someone from cutting a tree, working upstream of behavior at attitude and change their attitude so that they would not want to cut the tree. But I couldn't come up with an idea of a novel until Christmas party where someone said to me, I hear you're going to Spain. Why don't you go and see San Juan de Copostela where the bones of St. James are buried? And I thought at that moment, why not get some DNA and see what the guy looks like? And then I thought, why not somebody far more significant? I told my friends the plot. I might just explain to people roughly what the plot is without giving too much away. So the book basically sees this character, Evelyn, a female scientist. She discovers the remains of what she believes to be Jesus in Israel, and she sneaks out the DNA from the bones. Then she clones it and creates two embryos. She gives birth to one, and then the other is sent to South America, and a surrogate gives birth to the other one. So both boys, these twin boys, these clones of Jesus, live, I think, in roughly current times. So yes, please continue and explain why you use this plotline to engage people more in this sort of upstream version of, of the climate movement. I wanted to ask the question, and people reflect on this, what would someone with a genetic endowment of Christ say about the state of the environment? Would he join Wall Street or street protests? What we need today, I think, is a reset of religion. The overpopulation of the planet has to be considered, which is not sufficiently because of uh, unfortunate stands of religions and uh, that science have to reset community, culture has to reset. It requires a reset as the one that was seen back then when the early Christians established their communities. That was the idea, but to actually flesh it, I thought it would take me half a year, but it wasn't. 21 years later, somebody saw me, friend in Bondi Junction, on a cafe, writing it as 
where I usually go and write in uh, the Athens of the South, that's the junction <laughs> we like to call now, uh, in the intellectually fertile crescent between uh, Woolworths, Coles, and Target. Wow. Uh, and uh, she said, how is the book going? As she would always ask over the last uh, decades. And I said, yeah, 21 years and it's not finished yet. And she said, my cousin's novel was published posthumously. I said, you're giving me hope. <laughs> was it also motivation to get the damn thing out there? I was not, never got tired of the book. And I attribute this, unlike my, my academic books, where I really get tired by the end and when they finish, I really get tired of them. This one, I wasn't. And I attribute this to the fact that it was so poor to start with, that I was always making improvements. It always became better every time I was working on it. So I had uh, reward, reinforcement. I was uh, improving. I like that attitude. And I should just say it took me seven years to write one of my books and three years to write another. And I'm exactly the same. And eventually my publisher just has to come and grab it from me and go, we've got to press print on this because I could literally enjoy tinkering it forever. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I want to get onto some of the philosophical quandaries that your novel poses. But first of all, can I ask if the science in the book, this idea of being able to clone the DNA of Jesus Christ, is it plausible? All but that oh. is plausible. Cloning from desiccated tissue or well-preserved uh, histologically, uh, there is no evidence that this can be done. If it were frozen, yes. So the way I introduced it is that the ancients had some way of preserving the tissue structure, the DNA integrity. This uh, suspense of belief, then it's up to the reader. Yeah. In the end, it's a parable. So you're allowed to introduce those elements. So look, the book poses a bunch of questions, which I really enjoyed wrestling with as I was reading it. I guess the first is, is goodness inherited? Is it nature or is it nurture or is it something else? That's right. This is exactly what Evelyn was okay. contemplating. Am I going to produce a Christ or could it be an antichrist? Her theoretical conclusion is uh, that if uh, you clone yeast, you get yeast, you don't get drosophila. Mm. Uh, so there will be a genetic predisposition um, 
to the extent that uh, the DNA of Christ were of uh, the better quality as it concerns uh, those uh, issues of goodness. And in other words, Christ had a genetic predisposition. And indeed, in fashioning the characters, I took uh, that into consideration. There is evidence from identical twins even raised apart that uh, many traits uh, are similar. Uh, the environment will differentiate the characters and indeed someone from the east suburbs of Sydney and uh, an identical twin of his in the slums of Buenos Aires will develop differences depending on who mentors them, who, what they meet in life. Can we talk a little bit about how that nurture element, the fact that you grow up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney versus the slums and hardship and seeing the same climate crisis through a different lens. Talk us through some of the explorations there. What did that reveal as you were writing in terms of, I guess it's the global north versus the global south, funnily enough, you know, to what it says about, you know, your background and where you grow up? That's right. Both characters, Christopher and Jose had an interest in the environment, but from diametrically opposed points of view. Christopher was a businessman and looked at the prospects of producing green energy, which if not, if you don't produce that, then you keep burning fossil fuels, which would convert the Amazon into a savanna through global warming. Jose was looking at it, uh, that any dam you produce, you actually and then produce uh, oxygen poor zones downstream of the dam that then uh, the river is Amazon would be inhospitable to a number of species and that the dams to be constructed uh, produce so much CO2 and the fact that the vegetation in the drawdown zone decomposes under aerobic conditions and it will contribute more CO2 than the city of Sao Paulo that was his standard measure. They were looking at the same thing, but from different points of view. Jose was mentored by a professor who had a passion for the environment and uh, was schooled in those details that Christopher was looking in this adroit way of going and forcing nature to do what you want it to do. And Jose was viewing a nature as saintly that you cannot disturb it, that you cannot damage this Amazon, this source of life and inspiration. Yeah, I very much see it as almost a masculine versus a feminine approach. And I also live in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, not far from you, and I'm surrounded by tech bros, you know, with the latest regenerative farming app that they're trying to get funding for, et cetera. And it's very much a top-down approach and it's about mitigation. And then you have in other countries and nearby we've got the Pacific nations who are now looking at adaptation as well. So you also see that mitigation versus adaptation thing playing out. The book begs another question and that is this idea of the DNA from some humans, some great humans in history, whether it be Jesus or Gandhi or Einstein, are they better or bigger or big enough to fix the problems of our time? Uh, right. Uh, even Einstein could not foresee the consequences of his own theories. And uh, I have heard that when he was told that the construction of an atomic weapon is possible, he said, tell me it is not true. 
If you consider those great minds in the 50s, the 60s, virtually none mentioned the environmental issue. It was there then. The conditions were set from a hundred years before then, but they were not that perceptive. So to admit what we are, I don't think that the great minds will solve things. It was top graduates from Harvard that took us to Vietnam. Yes, I think it's a really interesting point. If I hear you correctly, what you're saying is that our brains are big enough to cause the problems in the first place. So our hunger for more knowledge and our curiosity, it's substantial enough to go and create these big problems, but it's not big enough to be able to then solve the problems that we create, but also to foresee where it will land us. So you're saying that even Einstein and these Harvard graduates, they could only go so far. So off the back of that, George, what do you conclude? I conclude we are in uh, such difficulty. In other words, if you only look at what the brain makes us come up with in Australia, the first continent to be degraded by climate change in the wake of the largest fires in recorded history and before the almost certain loss of all corals in the Great Barrier Reef and elsewhere and the consequent simplification of life in the oceans, Australia is the largest exporter of brown coal in the world and Australia not only does not carry its own weight in the climate change issue, but is interfering with global action to stabilize the climate. If that is not an indication that the brain is not the right size, I don't know what would be. So I am really asking for a reset, a reflection of who we are and that we are another primate on the planet to understand that we are not that different from other primates that we managed to rise to where we are. But at the same time, we constructed a, a, the conditions for our demise and that we are not as clever as we think we are. Reflect on who you are. And of course, there have been many great people who reflected on that, considered Darwin about who we are. The human exceptionalism was defeated just then, you would have thought, but no, it's alive and well in many places. So just reflect that we are looking at our own demise in more and more starkly. The evidence is there and we're not listening to the scientists. Paradoxical as it is, because we listened to them when it came to COVID, but not the climate scientists and we berate them. So reflect stop and reflect, look at the population. The first thing that the, the society could make a big progress on, that twice as many people, it means twice as much damage to the land, air and seas. So that's what I am asking, a reset. It's really interesting, actually. Have you ever heard of the philosopher and scientist David Chalmers? He's an Australian who's been working overseas for many years. He was my professor when I was in Santa Cruz in a course called Philosophy of the Universe, and we had to come up with an alternate theory for black hole. Honestly, I was 21 at the time and well out of my depth, but he's gone on. I've followed his work ever since, and he talks about this thing called the hard problem, and he says that our brains will never be able to solve consciousness, to actually be able to articulate what consciousness is. And it's a similar kind of thing, isn't it? So it keeps 
us in this grip of uncertainty and fear and doubt until we die because we will never be able to explain it. And he has looked at it deeply from a philosophical point of view and said, we just don't have the brains big enough. It's kind of what you're saying, isn't it? That's right. I mean, you wouldn't expect calculus from a cockroach, just in not enough synaptic buffer. It'll learn some things, but mm. not do calculus. What I am hoping people will do is to understand who we are, that is some humility and not hubris, and uh, accordingly behave. We don't trust uh, nuclear weapons to children, but we trust them to Putin and to Trump and to soon every nation will have uh, the capacity to destroy all life on the earth. And some, either through accident or through intent, uh, to meet their God may well do it. So if we don't have a brain large enough to solve it, what you're saying is almost to take it back, pair it back to a philosophical and sort of moral standpoint where we get humble enough to realise that and go, before we go and make some big change or allow an invention to just be placed on the planet, let's realise we're not smart enough to solve this if, it, if we stuff it up. Exactly. Mm. Uh, Self-understanding, this is what... I'm calling for more likely I will just be ignored as most novels are. <laughs> yep. Yep. I get it. One little question I had along the way, actually, and it's apropos nothing at all, but I love that your central character is a 40 something woman. She's the hero of the book. What's the reason behind that? In life, you meet people. And I met a lady and I told her actually that she was my heroine in the novel I was writing. A lady who was... Uh, Working in the lab, brain surgery on the day before Christmas. And uh, I thought, this is a dedicated scientist. Mm. Uh, and uh, Evelyn has her personality difficulties. You might have seen in people around us that uh, a love uh, early on that you can not shake off. Yes. And the ghost of uh, a departed a dead love is killing all future ones. Uh, she thought of finding love one day and uh, thought that actually giving birth to not only a child, but also an idea would be for her. The idea being bringing Christ back to the planet at a time when we are facing such existential despair. Uh, and correcting the greatest injustice she had the background for it in the sense that she was working on the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger. Yes. Uh, it was, project was stopped and uh, she could not complete it. She thought she was on the right track. She was hoping to see the Tasmanian tiger grace Tasmanian forests again. I think for a 78-year-old man to be able to conjure up the battle that so many women face, where you feel you have to decide between giving birth to a child and having love via that avenue or giving birth to an idea via career or creation or whatever, you write about it particularly well, I thought, just that struggle that every woman who's listening to this, they know what you and I are talking about here. But I started 21 years before that. <laughs> <laughs> In a previous interview, when I was just sort of researching for this, this chat here with you, George, I've heard you say that, you know, 
the enlightenment period is well and truly over and that we are heading into darker times. And I take that to mean intellectually and morally, and that we're sort of devolving to a certain extent. Explain why you feel this way. It was time in human history, the enlightenment period, 1600s, 1700s, where people thought, at least enough of them, critical mass, and the culmination of it was, of course, French Revolution, the Greek Revolution, the American Revolution, the American Constitution, that uh, we should not any longer obey dogma, but we should be guided by science and uh, the principles of individual freedom and uh, equality amongst people. And... Uh, we saw uh, in recent years with the structures are threatened. That is, the fossil fuel industry, they have uh, $39 trillion in assets and they will be stranded if society does what it must, not use them. And they have the capacity to buy as many uh, national party people as you want. And you have uh, things mentioned in Parliament that go against science. And of course, you have uh, there, the rise of Trump in the US and other dictators elsewhere. The irony of it that as long as the information before was cured by journalists who had some professional ethics to adhere to, you could actually get, uh, uh, by and large, uh, some good information. And now with this freedom that anyone uh, can, uh, even you and you right now in your podcast, yes. <laughs> can actually give a voice, a microphone to thoughts that have not been passed through any filter of uh, some norm that is expectations mm. that is uh, you expect to give a fair hearing in if you're a good journalist and this is any one of us now is a journalist and we can then self-reinforce ideas it seems it's a very good parallel for what you're saying um more broadly as to what's happening in the climate crisis and the goldilocks brain syndrome We've got a brain that's big enough to go, freedom, yes, that's what we need. That sounds like a great idea, right? Yes. A whole bunch of white men saying they need more freedom, but a not big enough brain to go, oh, hang on, where could this end up? And does it serve our humanity? And does it serve what we as humans know to be true at our ethical core? We've lost that balance, haven't we, George, between the collective and the individual, which we used to have via these institutions that very much came out of the Enlightenment that ensured that there were sort of gatekeepers and referees on the field that would make sure individualism didn't run rampant and kill the collective. I really like that idea of the Goldilocks brain. It's the fact that we're not quite smart enough, are we? we we're, we're smart enough to create the problem, not smart enough to cure it. And therefore, we end up being a species in a Petri dish eating itself up. Sarah, I'm glad that uh, you picked up on this Goldilocks uh, issue because this phrase, Goldilocks, I have relation to the brain. I've used it only this hour oh. with you. But the, indeed, uh, the issue of the enlightenment and the coming and darkenment. When I came to Australia, I felt I was coming to an, an, an even more enlightened country than the US, where I was previously. At five o'clock at Yale, the color of the people would change from the whites who were the professors 
to the blacks who came to clean. And I came here and I saw that the garbage collectors were white. This was uplifting. And uh, people would call me mate, as they would call, say, mate. And I thought they were actually saying Mike. And I (laughs) said, no, George, George is my name. Then I realized that uh, it was mate. That is not a word that's used in North America at that time anyway. I felt that this country was doing well. I saw erosion of some of this. I saw the exacerbation, uh, worsening of the distances between um, the haves and have-nots. And uh, uh, one thing you know from psychology, from education, it is what you invest in it. And this is for now and for later in life. That is, even whether you will be demanding early or not, Sarah, depends. In the first instance, in what family you were born in, was it rich? And then you have an advantage on many other things, of course, including the cycling that you do, which is as protective as anything. But can you do cycling without uh, actually risking your life in Sydney? This issue has impact on even the motivation. They would blame, for example, those children from or adults from poor areas, they don't have to get up and go. Motivation itself is environmentally a cause as much as any other behavior or influenced, if not caused. If I hear you right, George, really what you're putting forward as a solution, as a way for us to feel that we might be able to do something to save ourselves, you're asking us to reflect on the fact that we don't have big enough brains to solve a lot of the problems that we cause. And so, you know, take a breath regroup, refocus before we do something. I mean, really, that's kind of what your book is saying. And I'm wondering whether you have hope then. If you have hope for Australia with our new government, which I think is probably more capable of nuance and more considered debate on these really ethical, fundamental issues that go to the heart of the identity of Australia, but also more broadly when we're talking the climate crisis. Do you have hope that we might be able to learn this reflective process? Uh, You identified well the issues of uh, humility and not hubris as to uh, hope. Indeed, uh, I saw uh, the nice outcome of the election in that there were some Greens elected and uh, some independents, and that's a good development for Australia as to whether that will be enough. Australia will uh, still be the largest exporter of coal the, for many years to come, which is burning us. And I think that there's no hope, but at the same time, there's nothing more important than try to construct a sustainable society. And is that your sort of almost prognosis for living a good life? Yes. Even at the interpersonal level, uh, you will meet with people who would have similar views and uh, you'll commiserate together. And indeed, the brain is not geared to be depressed, to make you depressed for the end of the world. If you have a sliver under your in your thumb, that is really what motivates you. And there are many beautiful things to enjoy in life. Sitting in the room with many other people, my one-year-old grandson uh, uh, rushed through the room to come and hug my legs. Well, that is beautiful. And there are 
more important things than all that. The priority of the things we should attend to them first because all other causes were fighting for unless the environmental cause is actually won, all else is irrelevant. I have a question that I ask many of my guests at the end of the interview, and it's this, and it's from a question that Eric Fromm posed in the wake of sort of the nuclear proliferation in the, in the 60s. And he said, what is left if we lose it all? And I think you've almost answered the question, what matters to humans? What matters to you as a human, George, if there is no hope? Yes, the fact that I will see my children today matters more than all else, even the causes I fight for. This is the way I think we are programmed. The brain has kept us alive because of these uh, pleasures uh, to protect the next generation, the many depressing things that will happen in one's life. But they are the things that you see that your nightingales are still singing, even after you know that your demise is coming not long from now. It is uh, the way we were constructed. If only we could harness some of uh, uh, the predilections that nature has uh, encephalized, placed in our brains, and uh, use them to also achieve the collective, not the individual, I will feel happy with uh, my children and I will be keep worried, uh, worrying about uh, the environment, including their future. But if only we could join in uh, uh, this predilection to love the overall scheme of things. To take the love we feel for our close kin, that's quite an individual way of looking at things, and extend it out to the collective. I, I worked to a very similar notion, and in my most recent book, I, I pose this idea that we as humans will fight to save what we love. And so we will do anything to save our child. And if we could see that carried over into nature, and I feel, and I suspect you feel the same way, if we can reintroduce people to nature and our love of it, then perhaps we will fight for it too. Love is the answer. (laughs) I love that coming from a neuroscientist. It's wonderful. Thank you, George. That was a wonderful conversation. And um, I am going to put my hand up, actually, to attend one of your philosophy evenings. I understand you hold them on a regular basis. So I would love to join sometime. It'll be a pleasure to have you. You would be a great sophist. That's what we call ourselves so that we don't expect a lot of ourselves. And if I can uh, wish to your listeners that uh, their brain shrinks less than what expected from their age. That's a lovely way to sign off. Thank you, George. So some take-homes that I took from the conversation on some reflection are this. Be humble. Our brains are just not that great and they will destroy us if we don't take stock of this. The other one is to reflect more, you know, discuss issues and pause, get into the granular stuff and negotiate and do some sense-making before acting. And I guess this is the note that George left us with. And I suppose there's this one too that George left us with. Love our way to action. All right, everyone. So until next time, love wildly. 
Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.